The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Hello and welcome to The Credit Edge, a weekly markets podcast. My name is James Crombie. I'm a senior editor at Bloomberg. This week, we're very pleased to welcome to the show Gary Gurumurti, who covers high-yield bonds at Bloomberg News in New York. How are you, Gary? All well. What a, what a nice opportunity. Thank you for having me. Gary truly is the guru of junk bonds. So we're delighted to have her on the show and get her take on the markets. We're also very pleased to welcome back Rob Schiffman, a credit analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence in New York. We'll be coming back to Rob a bit later in the show to discuss artificial intelligence and how it's affecting credit. So do stay with us. But first, Gary Gurumurti with Bloomberg News. You're all over the junk bond market. It's where the drama is. It's a $1.4 trillion market that includes household names like Ford, American Airlines and Uber. Essentially, we're talking about risky companies raising debt in the bond market for a wide variety of things, projects, acquisitions, refinancing, payment of dividends to shareholders. They're typically the companies, though, that run into trouble when interest rates jump or if there's a slowdown in the economy. They have less of a cushion when the going gets tough. But despite the huge surge in rates and therefore funding costs that we've seen over the last few years, not to mention a banking crisis in March, growing recession fears, slower earnings and a whole load of proliferating macro and geopolitical risks, junk bonds have had a great year, haven't they? So, Gary, you've been covering this for a long time. We've had the pleasure of working together for many years. What's the story? How are junk bonds doing so well against all the odds? First, I would just say I agree with you that with all these recession fears, rate hike, drama, um, banking crisis, financial system coming to a halt, U.S. high yield has been doing pretty well. But there's a mildly disagreement in the sense uh, there are there are there is no recession fear. They were early in the year they were talking about likely recession, possible recession, end of the year, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But recession fears have really gone out of the window. Nobody is thinking of recession. Um, not in the near term, not uh, likely. They're talking of you know soft landing, slow landing, slow growth, etc. Growth creeping near a halt, but not really a recession. And therefore, high yield has benefited from this sort of um, what should I say, Goldilocks. You have a stable growth, sort of chugging along, and uh, no uh, corporate corporate balance sheets look reasonably healthy. So I really. And that explains why high yield has been performing well. High yield is not as rate sensitive as investment grade are. Investment grade bonds are, and therefore high yield has outperformed investment grade as well. I definitely agree with you that markets don't seem to be pricing in any kind of recession, but our in-house economists um, at Bloomberg Intelligence, they, they think that there will be a recession starting in the fourth quarter in the US. Maybe it's not going to be a deep recession, but you know, possibly a, just a mild, you know, shallow uh, dip. But um, going back to the junk bond market 
also surprising to me at least is that the riskiest bonds, those rated triple C, that's the lowest credit rating, they've done really, really well this year. They, you know, they're up, you know, double digits. Um, again, are you surprised by that? Not really. Again, triple C's are a very small, about 10 to 12 percent of the total index. So it's very, it's a very small percentage. When something is small, they always uh, can do a lot better than the rest of the market. Second, triple C's are more uh, sensitive to equity volatility rather than rates volatility. And equity volatility, if you're going to just check the index historically, they've been below 20. You know, it's been practically very low volatility there. Equities have performed very well year to date. And so triple C's are reflecting equity performance. That's one. Secondly, as I said, it's a very small percentage of the total index, so I see no surprise there. And thirdly, as I just mentioned a few minutes ago, it is more a rate concern now than growth concerns, actually. People are pretty much there, all the big dealers, everyone talking about uh, soft landing, slow economy, including the Fed. They don't expect a recession in the near term or in the immediate um, future. So growth concerns, not really top of the mind. Equity, equity markets are doing pretty well. Triple C's are a very small percentage of the total market. So it naturally will outperform the rest of the market. I still worry, though, because, you know, triple C's typically, you know, they're the ones most likely to default on their debt when things get hard. We've seen a lot more bankruptcies this year. Um, you know, so there is stress. And, and as uh, funding costs jump, some of these companies just aren't going to be able to pay back the money. So I'm just wondering why, you know, markets just seem so blasé about all this. Uh, I know that's a very predictable sort of response or question. People wonder triple C's are junkiest of junk and therefore they should default. One, default rates, even the forecast for default rates is not really very high. Even they predict about 4%, 5%. The, even the egregious default rate would be about 5% end of 2024, 2024. 2025. And that's not very high by historical standards, number one. Two, triple C's, not the whole of triple C's is really bad. Triple C's are some, sometimes technically triple C. They are pretty reasonably good companies with high coupons. They're not necessarily going to default. Spike in default is not really expected. And the recent months we have seen the distressed universe is also shrinking. And with the economy, if the economy chugs along, you mean you may see some defaults, but it's not going to really sort of bring the market down. It won't sort of uh, crash the triple C market altogether. So we were kind of all wrong about worrying. I mean, there was sort of chicken licking. The sky was falling down earlier this year, you know, right? They always say it's a very cliched thing. You know, broken clock is right <laughs> twice a day. So we may turn out to be right sometime, someday, but not this year. And there's plenty of time for that. So we, we think that this continues, this kind of performance? Um, I, I, you know, I'm not in the business of forecasting or predicting, but still I would say I see no reason why there'll be a serious derailment or disruption. Why? Interest rates have already peaked. They're not going to raise interest rates, so that they've ruled out almost. Higher for longer, they are, the market's sort of are pricing it in, and um, growth is still okay. Fourth Q, perhaps, 4Q will perhaps be slower than 3Q, and earnings still look okay, though they are much uh, lower than what they were in the earlier quarters. So corporate balance sheet looks pretty okay. Interest coverage may fall, but not, no cause for concern. 
so i really don't see a major derailment in 2024 not in the fourth quarter what happens in the first quarter of 2024 is again it's an open ended question and but even there one does not see a major disruption because um economy is going to chug along and if they see any serious disruption in the economy you know by the end of first quarter the fed will start cutting rates though they are not saying they they saying they will not cut rates markets think markets really expect if there is going to be a serious disruption geopolitical disruption or major chaos government shutdown or gum the or the congress and pass uh, the uh, the cr continuing resolution bill or does not pass the government budget all this may cause some disruption and fed will intervene and fed will not let things escalate so i don't see anything happening till the first quarter of 2024 nothing serious there may be some volatility spreads widening and even now you see spreads are around 400 nothing no sign of recession there you're an economist and one of my basic theories about this market and you can tell me if it's all nonsense to you is demand and supply that you know there's consistent demand for yield especially um when the coupons are so high now um double digits for stuff that you know previously not that long ago you were getting 5% on it so it looks really attractive but meanwhile the actual supply of this stuff has gone right down i mean this is a very bad year for issuance so in that sense i think the price just gets better and and these things go up there you you made my you you answered my question so another important reason growth is not an important concern for the high yield market equity volatility is pretty low not really not of any concern at all and overall supply of new bonds is very thin it's sort of maybe 50% about 2022 but that's a very low bar it is still perhaps the lowest since 2008 or 2009 so supply is very thin economy is pretty robust people have a lot of cash to invest in so more demand few supply basic econ 101 On the supply side though you look at this stuff very closely and and everyone listening should should follow Gary on the terminal for her updates on the supply side because it's essential stuff. What are you saying? What do you expect? Is it going to be a big increase next year? I mean there's refinancing to do, right? I don't see a big sharp jump in US junk bond supply because as I have always tell my colleagues and friends, supply comes for three different two broad reasons one is funding acquisitions or leverage buyouts that's also broadly acquisitions and second is refinancing outstanding bonds and third perhaps is you know capital expenditure projects etc but that's a third refinancing and repaying debt so these are the two broad things and so in the first category of acquisitions and lbos you find they are very far and few and fewer and far between they don't see very large number of them because of high cost of borrowing it's not easy for private equity guys to buy companies and make money there margins are very thin so that's not super attractive high cost of borrowing so given that lbos and acquisitions are fewer in number the reason for issuing new bonds is sort of uh, not very uh, exciting so refinancing people talk of and i was just looking at refinancing numbers this could differ from day to day and you about 300 billion expected um 
roughly about till end of 2025 if i bring it 2024 as i don't think much is really due 2024 so we are already refinancing all the outstanding bonds pretty steadily and so refi- and therefore i don't see a big jump in supply you may see it pretty much now it's go- it's going to be about less than 200 this time 200 billion maybe next year around the same a little more couple of more lbos and i don't know if i'm carrying on but you also see acquisitions and lbos have another source of funding they were dependent on high yield bonds and now and leverage loans now you will see a third source of funding is direct lending or what they call private credit so even the fewer and far between lbos are also sort of going into the private credit world so that again takes over out of bond supply bond issuance and again low supply means higher price higher price and better returns let's just go back to the macro signals though. i mean i'm i'm really interested in this concept of you know the spreads um being way lower than they should be if the, if anyone expects a recession so presumably junk bond markets don't expect a recession but what else are the signals from the market that you're seeing I'm not seeing any recession signal spreads are pretty tight people are comparing people are complaining the spreads are very tight not enough to give uh, and yields are pretty decent under 10% and uh, you know even triple c's is about under 14% pretty high yield which is making it attractive for that so that even that high yields narrow spreads do not suggest that there is a recession at all and demand for junk bonds also high yield i should say junk is a very sort of trivializing the bond market is i think also shows that there's a willingness for uh, embracing risk this risk appetite is still pretty robust so all those all these things don't indicate capital market open is still open people can still come in and borrow money for a price so access to capital markets willingness to embrace risk uh, tight spreads all these indicate to me that the, there is no sign of any immediate recession not in the near term what would it take though to derail the rally what are you mostly worried about in terms of your i mean you sound quite um upbeat and optimistic about this market but what what worries you about the outlook Geop- sudden unexpected geopolitical tension if this Israel Hamas conflict expands into middle east thing that was one thing oil prices it's been up and down it's been pretty high now will it go what happens and what happens to china's growth if china really slows down i think the fear of china slowing down seems more exaggerated but if china slows down something happens in europe um that could derail market but i still don't see a major disruption at all from any i cannot see where can it come from high leverage no leverage is still not high it is not what it used to be in 2006 7 and 8 uh, so leverage is pretty under control economy is chugging along people have the willingness to embrace risk federal reserve is watching like a hawk is on the sort of watching any anything untoward they are going to intervene there is no doubt about that whatever they say so given all these things i do not know where will the disruption come from unless there is an unexpected geopolitical tension some bank failure nobody thought a regional bank would fail something that nobody is watching happens uh, we could see something but otherwise i see some here and there up and down but no major derailment 
And even some of those things you mentioned, I mean, they have resulted in better prices on, on junk bonds because, you know, if oil goes up, that's positive for high yields, a lot of energy in, in the index. The other one is that, you know, if you see problems in other parts of the world, often there's a kind of flight to um, the what? U.S. as a kind of, um, you know, home bias just to just as, a, as a kind of haven. Safe haven yeah. So all of these things you, you mentioned as potential risks <laughs> actually have, you know, and also we had a banking crisis and the market just bounced right back. So you seem to be agreeing with me. There's I mean, no major I'm, disruption. Do you expect in the near term? As I said, something very unexpected we can't think of. I cannot think of anything in the fourth quarter at least. You may have thin supply here and there, some volatility, minor spread widening. Even the forecast for spread widening, Morgan Stanley was talking about 50 to 75 basis points from end of September, which is 450, 475, which is, which is hardly, and that is not any sign of recession. So interest coverage is, is dropping, yes, but nothing to worry about yet. Refinancing is still get, getting done. Markets are still open. So I don't know where the disruption is going to come from. I just, as a you know, a journalist who covers credit, I spend my time just worrying about bad things that could happen. But that's just me. As so. a, true, as a journalist, <laughs> I do want something to be writing about. But as I said, market primary market is shut down for a whole for a whole week in October. The kickoff to the fourth quarter was not great because of all this fear about higher for longer, and people have been talking about one more rate hike that will make things worse. Uh, so all these things made and the sudden this Middle East conflict, all these things made people worry as to what is going to happen. Will there be a recession? But then Fed officials quickly sort of came out and said that we are at the peak, very unlikely to raise rates, and uh, soft landing is what they all expect. So all these things, again, reassured the market, and they're slowly coming back to, you know, September levels. So before we talk to Rob Schiffman at Bloomberg Intelligence, tell us, Gary, what else is on your radar? What else should we be watching for in junk bonds? Or high yield bonds, as you prefer to call them. No, I, I think the high yield bonds will end the year beating. I mean, triple C's will beat just with the corporate fixed income. They're going to be the best performing asset class, and of course, leverage loans will always uh, beat uh, high yield bonds. I think leverage loans will do well, and uh, the, the high yield market is going to be pretty steady and chugging along. I see nothing to worry about in the high yield market. And the bears will be just destroyed. They're waiting for it to happen and they'll have to come and go. Great stuff. Gary Gurumurthy from Bloomberg News. Thank you so much for joining us. And thank you for having me. Read all of Gary's scoops on the Bloomberg Terminal and, of course, at Bloomberg.com. Pay attention to junk bonds, everyone. Now I'm delighted to welcome back to the Credit Edge Rob Schiffman, who covers tech credit for Bloomberg Intelligence based in New York. How's it going, Rob? Awesome. Great. So as we all know, the big theme in markets right now is artificial intelligence. BlackRock calls it a mega force for investors. But it's not really new. Stanley Kubrick was all over it in 1968 <laughs> with his sci-fi classic 2001, A Space Odyssey. Great film, by the way. I watched it again on a plane recently. So we've been talking about and mostly fretting over AI for at least the last 55 years. And the machines haven't beaten us yet. But Rob... What does it all mean for credit? We're starting to see a bit more electronic trading of bonds, and I'm sure there's more people using chat GPT to write their daily market wraps. But how is it affecting the world you cover? What's the scoop, Rob? Sure. Well, listen, six months ago, when, uh, when we had our last chat, I told you spreads were a lot wider, um, and there was a much more concern about a recession, that technology credits 
had never been better positioned than they were today. And um, I'll tell you, six months later, technology credits have never been better positioned than they were than they are today. And uh, a big part of that is the semiconductor space where demand is just starting to boom. And I think that um, an explosion of AI has really hit the market in terms of concept uh, and hope, uh, more so than fundamentals at this point. But I do think that there's a path for a large segment of the semiconductor space, both from the developers as well as the foundries, to take enormous advantage of a growing pie of revenues and cash flow over an extended period of time. You're spot on. Listen, is AI really something new? The the answer is no. Computing power has always made an enormous difference in how uh, everybody lives and works. Uh, And there's always been this massive, rapid advancement of how things change over time with technology. I do think the real benefit, though, from a credit perspective is that this is not just going to change how people live their lives or how work is done uh, or how commuting is done or how health how the impact on the healthcare system changes. But we're really going to see, uh, I think, a boom from a fundamental standpoint over the next few years that's supportive of both credit and equity. Let's talk about some names though, that you cover, Rob. NVIDIA. What is it? How is how important is it to credit investors, and how are they using AI? Yeah. So listen, why is everybody talking about Nvidia um, and not talking about um, so many other uh, chip designers? And, and the real reason is that right now Nvidia has a stranglehold on the most powerful AI chips. Um, you know, effectively, they're dominating seventy percent of the market, and the type of financial guidance that they've given. Um, creates a path towards numbers from revenue to EBITDA to free cash flow in terms of growth rates that really haven't been seen before. I mean, back in the in in the early 2000s and, and the days of the dot-com boom, you know, there were hopes that, uh, at least from a valuation perspective, that, um, you know, eyeballs would be followed by dollars. And in this case, we're starting to see the, the dollars lead. So NVIDIA's ramp up in terms of free cash flow, for instance, over the next five years might be going from, you know, two, three billion of free cash flow to 50 billion of free cash flow five years from now. This is real. This is no longer just theoretical. Um, They're not going to be the only winners here, though. In fact, I think there's winners across the board from the cloud players, whether that's uh, Amazon, Google, Microsoft to hardware providers, i.e. Apple, to a whole host of foundries, whether that's Taiwan Semi uh, or Micron, or even an Intel, which uh, is a separate story in and of itself, but is likely to catch up. And then you layer on top of that uh, all the other designers, whether it's somebody like an NXP or an AMD or an Intel itself. There's a tremendous room for growth, because again, this is gonna be an enormously growing pie. That being said, though, um, NVIDIA really is the only one from a fundamental standpoint that's really starting to see that increase in demand show up on their balance sheet. The interesting thing, though, you know, I started off by talking about how tech is so well positioned from a credit perspective. You, know, you can make an argument that it's the biggest names 
the ones that I rattled off that are the highest rated that are going to benefit the most, you know, it's the rich get richer. NVIDIA's rated single A. They're going to have so much excess free cash, I think, over the next few years. The only option they're going to have for their money is to give it back to shareholders. It becomes an Apple, Microsoft style story. How much better can their credit get? Well, listen, in theory, if they wanted to be a double A credit, they could be. But they don't need to be. They have very few borrowing needs. They're going to have, um, uh, again, a buildup in cash. And 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 listen, this is not just me saying it. They announced an increase in their buyback program by twenty five billion dollars. You know, I already mentioned. I think that they can grow free cash flow to fifty billion in the next five years. So I think that's just going to get sort of bigger and bigger. So if you own Nvidia bonds. Congratulations, you're in great shape. You're not getting a ton of yield, um, but it's sort of like the, it's, it's sort of a microcosm of the rest of the tech space is that you're not buying Apple bonds or Google bonds or Microsoft bonds uh, or NVIDIA bonds because you think they're going to tighten dramatically. You're buying them because you think that they're safe and there's lower volatility in bond spreads. Um, and that in times of stress, whether that's, um, higher recession concerns or increasing rate environment that uh, your bond prices are going to hold in a lot better than comparable investment grade names. And that's what I think is going to happen here. So NVIDIA becomes a great poster child for AI. They're going to benefit from a credit perspective in terms of stability. And from an equity perspective, obviously, with a valuation now over a trillion dollars, you know, the market is seeing those same sort of dollar signs uh, that we are. And quite frankly, you know, buying back $25 billion of stock for a trillion dollar equity doesn't really make a difference. It's just a sign of, I think, how good things are to, to come. But the stock has basically gone up five times in one year. I, I'm old enough to remember the dot-com boom and bust. I start to worry when I see that level of you know enthusiasm and excitement over one stock. It's just too good to be true. I mean, are you not worried at all? There's no risk? Well, luckily, I'm the credit guy and not the equity <laughs> guy, so I don't have to really worry about multiples. I do think, though, when you just think about justification about why there's been um, such multiple expansion, it's it's again, it's twofold. One is that it's it's not just a multiple, but it's a multiple expansion uh, on top of what's likely to be a big earnings boom. And again, I, you know, you have to sort of wait and see it. But this is not a promise of hope that. Uh, you can monetize something. They are already starting to monetize their chips. You know, the cost of a an NVIDIA AI chip is multiples of that of what would be a typical chip for a standard GPU in um, a cloud or an on-premise-based um, server. So you, you, you have a higher margin product that's... Um, there's almost a monopoly style business here, uh, likely for the next few years, where the demand is known and we're actually seeing it flow through financials. The Again, this, this is the beginning phases. So, you know, there could be a lot that goes wrong. Um, that being said, clearly NVIDIA is the best positioned out of all the semiconductor names um, that we cover. From a credits perspective, let's say I'm wrong and I'm wrong by 50%, that that free cash flow is not 50 billion in five years, it's only 25 billion. Let's say it's only 15 billion. Uh, I would argue it could still be a single A credit. So the real concern would be, 
hey, if you have growth rates that are slower and the stock loses 50% of the value, do they start buying a lot more stock and say, hey, let's be like Oracle, uh, let's load the balance sheet up with debt to buy back stock and fall to triple B. That's the type of concern you can have as a credit analyst. I think the probability of that um, in the near to intermediate term, the next two to three years, is is really very, very low. Um, and it doesn't really make me uh, pause. I, I, I do think when you look at some of the other names, um, you know, if you look across the board at how tech equity and credit have performed this year, Credit's been pretty stable. You know, returns are, are basically close to zero. Spreads are mildly tighter, you know, measured by basis points. Um, but equities are up dramatically. Now, part of that is that they were down so much last year. Part of that is that there's real hope that there's a fundamental shift. I'm actually seeing that fundamental shift. Uh, we're getting a, a lot of green shoots. Uh, in, in terms of return of revenue and cash flow growth in 2024. So, um, listen, the credit markets are always a little bit less excited than the equity markets and a little less volatile. But I think credit's telling you something that even with a much higher rate environment, um, equity values um, don't have to worry about credit uh, as one of the reasons why they're not going to go up. What about AMD? I remember when they were junk. Now they're the stars. How do they get there and why are they doing so well. Yeah, you know, everyone does a does a little bit different. You know, it's so funny, like in technology, you tend to talk about it as one giant group. But the reality is, is no company does um, something exactly the same as another. And even within semiconductors, it's it's meaningfully different. You know, AMD had benefited over the years, you know, five years ago that they, they were single B, uh, and now they're single A. And, um, you know, they were able to really uh, build a little bit better mousetrap than Intel and steal a significant amount of market share um, when it comes primarily to the, the PC market. Uh, and listen, you know, the, the power that's been, been needed, you know, forgetting about AI, think about the last 10 years about the, the power of um, gaming-related PCs and, and how the explosion um, of both gaming uh, and at-home PC use, um, particularly post-COVID, um, has really exploded higher. And I, I think what happens when you're a much bigger, larger company, particularly like Intel, um, where you're both a designer of chips and a manufacturer of chips, and you're spending a tremendous amount of capital on foundries, um, sometimes you take the eye off, you know, you take your eye off the ball when you're, you're the industry leader. And AMD was just able to create, um, you know, a whole set of, of chips. You, you can talk to um, you know, our equity team about the, the real differences. I, you know, I'm just sort of the, the dumb right-hand side of the balance sheet guy, but uh, really create a little bit of, of better chips that created much more demand that dramatically increased cash flow. The thing, though, is that, you know, you can't stake your future on the PC business. You know, PCs are extraordinarily cyclical. Um, you know, we're seeing that now uh, in terms of during COVID, there was such huge demand for PCs, both uh, personal and enterprise, and we've seen a significant drop over the last 12 to 18 months. Um, so even if you have a bigger piece of a smaller of a smaller pie, that that doesn't really create the future. But the re the real future is going to be creating chips uh, for enterprises, for servers, for storage, for cloud computing, and taking a, a much bigger piece of what is this cloud-related 
enterprise business. In particular, uh, obviously, the AI side has, has the biggest upside. Uh, but that's what that's you're starting to see. You know, names like in, um, you know uh, NXP, for instance, moving you know from uh, graphics and, and gaming um, more towards uh, the server side. You're going to see a lot, a lot more of that. So the the market is expanding. Certain parts of the market are not. Uh, AMD, I think, from a credit perspective, is sort of in the NVIDIA category. How much better can it get? Probably not that much better. You know, what differentiates a name like that from other credits is absolute size of debt. They just don't have a lot of bonds outstanding. You know, in in the scheme of investment-grade bonds, they're almost a non-player. It's just, you know, you have a a couple billions of, of bonds outstanding, you know, when we're comping that to, to names like like Apple with 100 billion of bonds um, or the Intels or Oracles of the world with 50 or 75 or 80 billion, you know, they're sort of a small player. Um, so it's really much more of an equity story. That being said, to me, names like an AMD that don't have the free cash flow run rate that an NVIDIA have, they could benefit, in theory, from issuing more bonds and being more aggressive on a financial policy. I would argue maybe the reason why they don't do that is just simply the rate environment, right? If we were back two years ago, names like AMD probably would be issuing more bonds. But when you have a you know, five-year trading close to 5%, you know, even if your spreads are only 100 basis points, um, you know, over treasuries, you know, you're talking about 6% bonds versus a few years ago, you know, these names were issuing 1% and 2% bonds. So overall, should we expect less supply from tech in terms of issuance? Well, you know, there's less of a need. Um, over the last couple of years, a lot of companies have done a significant amount of refinancing. You're definitely seeing a drop in both high yield and investment grade uh, issuance. I think that's likely to continue in, in the near term. The The benefit of this space and having such high credit quality is that they, you know, they don't need to borrow. Um, and I could say that about almost any name that I cover. And that's a huge, you know, differentiating factor among, but you know, between this sector and others. It's why, you know, on a consolidated basis, high yield and IG tech trade tighter than pretty much every other sector. Um, it's because of that financial flexibility. Uh, in terms of upcoming maturities, they're just not that great over the next year. Um, you know, it's in the neighborhood of 65-odd billion dollars, the vast majority of which is coming from the largest credits that don't really need to borrow. Um, th- there, there was the potential for some large-scale M&A-related financing, um, Broadcom buying VMware, uh, of which uh, $30-plus billion was um, a bridge facility, including $8 billion of assumed debt, so $40 billion of new debt. Um, they could have easily went out and, uh, you know, the deal supposed to close at the end of the month, uh, and just borrowed all that money. The reality, though, is that um, it's cheaper and easier for them to borrow from banks. So they replaced their $32, $32 billion bridge with $28 billion of bank term loans. And could they term that out over time? Uh, yeah, the answer is, of course. But if you can get a much lower rate and banks are willing to w- write you the check, why term it out now? So I think funding needs from that that transaction, you know, which people thought could have been the biggest deal of the year, might end up being a zero this year. Then on, on the other side, when you're talking about super high quality, it looks like Microsoft eventually is going to be able to buy Activision. It's $69 billion of cash. I mean, that's sort of like, again, just goes back to our 
our theme of like, who can write a $69 billion check? And they didn't have any bank loans. They had no bridge. They just wrote it because they have $100 plus billion of cash on the books. Um, it would have made, you know, a year plus ago when they, they announced this, it would have made sense um, just to turn that out, uh, or at least a big chunk of it, add cash to the balance sheet, continue to buy back, uh, you know, $50, $60 billion of stock each year, pay big dividends, and then still be on the lookout for more M&A. But again, in this sort of rate environment, you know, do, do they really need to have $100 billion on the books right now? Probably not. And um, they can continue to buy back just as much stock as they have without borrowing. Um, they don't have massive maturities coming up. So when we just think about like the natural course of like what do maturities look like over the next year, they're reasonably low. What does M&A needs look like over the next year? They're reasonably low. So I, I think that's one of the things that also benefits this space is that we're seeing a meaningful decline in new issuance and that helps improve technicals. Um, everyone is sort of looking for higher quality, higher yielding names. The tech space, particularly out the curve, has historically offered that. They've been pretty steep curves because there's a lot of 20 and 30 year paper out there, but there's not a lot of new paper coming. And I, I just don't see that happening at least until early next year. And who knows what the rate environment will, will be like then. So before we wrap things up, Rob, where is the value here? As you've noted, even though they have very high credit ratings, most tech bonds have been trading below par. You know, Microsoft's um, rated AAA is one of the few names that is. Yet some of its bonds look like they're actually distressed when you look at the price, yeah. even though there's no danger of default. So shouldn't everyone be loading up where, where they can? It seems like a screaming buy. Where, where would you say is the, the value in, in, in the market right now, credit market? Yeah, you know, we just put out a note uh, highlighting that, you know, 90% of the indexes that we cover, high grade and high yield tech uh, bonds are trading below par. And and the reality is the 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 primary reason for that are, are rate moves. Um, you know, if, if you have a... Uh, a triple A or double A bond trading in the fifties, that's not a um it's not a statement about credit quality whatsoever. It's it's purely math and and rates. If you look at spreads, spreads year to date, both in high yield and IG are tighter. Um total returns are are are, are reasonably flat because of, of rates. You know, the vast majority of investment grade uh portfolio managers uh are are hedging treasuries. So it's really about spread, not about dollar price. So it, it, it sort of makes you salivate. Like I can buy Apple for 58 cents on the dollar. Wow, that seems like a home run. But the reality is your yield is still reasonably low relative to others. So, so what's the play? The play is that if you're concerned about uh, a recession, rate volatility or spread volatility, the tech space remains a place um, to park your money and hide and wait for a better day to invest. I do think that there's a barbell style strategy with owning super high quality names, the double A's and triple A's that we've talked about, as well as moving down the curve. You know, you can pick up pretty good incremental yield for names like Broadcom or Oracle uh, that have levered their balance sheet meaningfully over the past couple of years, but really have little to no risk of falling to junk. Um, but you can pick up 50 or 75 basis points depending upon what part of the curve you're looking at. And that can create excess returns that can help create uh, outperformance um, 
within the space. In terms of high yield, there's some you know some higher quality names like uh, Uber uh, or even names like Match that generate a lot of free cash that could be uh, rising towards investment grade. Uh, they trade tight to peers though. And listen, you're just going to hear that over and over again from me talking about tech. The vast majority of names trade tight to peers. It doesn't mean you don't want to own them, um, but it certainly means uh, if you're going to own them, own the names whose credit quality has lower volatility or has some upside. But this this is definitely a, a, a game where you're not looking to hit home runs. You're looking to hit singles. And I'll tell you, you can make the Hall of Fame by hitting a lot of singles. You can just get your automated investment managers to do all the work for you as well. Uh, so. Eventually, you'll have a computer uh, talking a lot smarter than I will. Thank you very much, Rob Schiffman of Bloomberg Intelligence. You can read all of his great analysis on the Bloomberg Terminal. Do check it out. And Rob's Bloomberg messages all bear the legend, tech is my life, call me. So do take him up on that. Thanks, Rob. Thanks, James. Hope to see you back on the show soon before the machines take over. And thanks again to Gary Gurumurthy from Bloomberg News. Read all of her great scoops on the terminal and at Bloomberg.com. And please do subscribe where you get your podcasts. We're on Apple, Google and Spotify. Give us a review. Tell your friends or email me directly at jcrombie8 at Bloomberg.net. That's J. C-R-O-M-B-I-E, as in my surname, and the number eight at Bloomberg.net. Please do get in touch. I'm James Crombie. It's been a pleasure having you. Join us again next week on The Credit Edge. Countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CarterEconomicForum.com.